Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. I'm so glad you're here today. Um, my name is Chris Causey. I'm the lead pastor. And today we're going to continue on this series that uh, we've been kind of unpacking over the last few weeks called Follow. And um, this is one of those series that through the summer, especially the month of August, um, you know, school hasn't started back yet. And um, in many ways, like the kind of the church and crowds and people kind of evaporate to their summer things. And so the month of August historically has been one of those times where we've um, like to kind of go a little deeper and say, okay, what is it to kind of maybe ask a, a little deeper spiritually profound question and use the month to kind of kind of process through that. And the question that we've been asking this month is really around this issue of follow. And what does it look like to, to follow Jesus and to be a follower of Jesus? Because this was the first word he used in his invitation for people in a relationship with him. So this was kind of a critical word. And so through the month of August, this is what we've been doing. And today I want to kind of continue off of a message from last week. And because I think this is a really fundamental core thing that Jesus really wanted his, his followers to get. Um, so one of the things that you should know about our household is we like games. Um, I didn't grow up in a big gaming family where we sat around the table and did games, but my wife did. So when I got married to her, you kind of incorporate some of those things into your life. And so um, they played games. In fact, when we would date, I would sit there and kind of watch and terror sometimes. And afterwards, I'd be like, Jenny, does your family like each other? Because uh, they were screaming at each other. And like your mother-in-law, my, like my future mother, I'm like, your mom scared me. I didn't know she had that side. You know, and so my wife is really competitive. And her brother's really competitive. They're all competitive. And I am like not competitive at all. The part of me, though, that might look a little competitive is the part that uh, showed up this past week in our house when we were playing a family game. Um, my daughter got this new game this summer um, that has this, like, weird card thing. It's really kind of chaotic. But the, the point of the game is people are having to, like, get penalties and hit this button. And at a certain point, randomly, this thing will pop up in the air. And if you grab it and catch it first, that's, you're usually the winner. And so, like, when we play it, um, like, my wife walked in, you know, and I'm, like, practicing, trying to figure out the average number of thing button presses before it pops up in the air. And it's, like, I'm, like, practicing some kind of, like, grab move where I'm getting, and, and it was a, a thing, I think it's called a little snitch. And by the end of our first game, we realized that there's, like, a saying that's not exactly the way it was said back then, but it's totally how we say it in our houses, that snitches call stitches because, I mean, I pretty much injured everybody in our family trying to get the, that thing when it flew up. I mean, I'd lunge across, I'm slapping it. My daughter's like, this isn't fair, you're too fast. And my wife's like, my hand hurts. And I'm like, snitches call stitches, woman, right? I mean, it's just this whole other side of me comes out. And it shouldn't have been surprising because, like, when I really want to understand how something works, I can become obsessive about it. Like, I mean, this, I, I'm a huge learner. I love curiosity and understanding stuff. And so, in fact, I, I sent my wife this meme this week because I was like, oh, my goodness, I figured out me. Like, this is going to be my son who is three. One day, this is what he's going to send his friends um, because this Right, um, this is a picture from Lord of the Rings. It's like 
My friends and all our dads listening to the laser tag employee give the instructions. Like, if you ever go to a laser tag place with me, you would swear that that teenager giving instructions to all the adults in the room is like General Patton telling us how we're going to storm the beaches. I mean, like, something inside me is like, yeah, yeah, okay, don't hit anybody with the gun. All right, no pistol whipping with the, okay, got it. Right, I'm like so in the zone. And so I sent this, and she just kind of like literally laughed out loud. And she's like, this is you with the snitch, too. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of how I was watching the snitch as well. I mean, there's something in me that if I'm going to do it, right, I don't know about you, but my personality is like, if you're going to do it, do it right. Right, do it right. And so this side bubbles up. And I think naturally there's kind of in this conversation around follow, I think that's kind of an appropriate question to say. Like, if we're going to do this Christian thing right, what does it look like to do it right? Last week we looked at this profound moment that Paul had with Jesus on the road and how I give you this word picture. In fact, this is a a time-lapse photo of the the night sky and there in the center the star that didn't move is a star that we call Polaris or the North Star and it's the star used for navigation because because of its location in the night sky and earth's axis and its tilt um, Polaris for the last roughly a thousand plus years has stayed static and it's used to navigate and what Paul has is this kind of completely reorienting completely life-defining encounter with Jesus that transforms who he is. It, it brings a grace that washes away the guilt, and it brings a stability and an anchor that completely reorients and transforms his life that Saul, to capture how new he is out of his encounter with Jesus, literally changes his name to Paul because who he is on the inside is different. And we say that this is kind of the starting point, this kind of redefining, like re-altering experience where you realize who Jesus is and what he's done for you and all your life reorients around him. But that, that's not enough that for the conversation to say follow. That's, this is the starting point. So what does it look like to step in this follow conversation? And, and fortunately for us, Jesus had this kind of moment where his earliest followers were kind of like these same group of guys because that was the question they wanted to know. Jesus comes along out of, out of nowhere, in this backwoods country spot of Israel 2,000 years ago. He starts teaching. And he starts performing miracles. And people are curious about him. They're like, who is this, this guy? And he's walking up to people who are starting to pay attention to him. He's saying, hey, follow me, which was which sounds a little weird in our context, but in that context, it was exactly what you would do if you were a rabbi. It's how you would build a following. You would go to people who are listening to your teachers, and you're like, hey, follow me. I want to teach you even deeper things. And so part of the steamrolling, kind of snowballing of that movement that Jesus has builds up to this moment where his disciples, his earliest followers are sitting there listening, and there's this huge crowd of people gathered around them. And Jesus delivers what is now considered to be one of the 
the, the greatest sermons to have ever been delivered. It's the sermon that's been heard and read by more people in human history than any other message that has ever been spoken out loud ever before. And it's the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew, who's there, who's one of the followers of Jesus, records every word so that we still have it 2,000 years later. And it's a fairly short message, but it's profound and it's grand in its scope and how it goes across so many different areas of life. And, and Matthew lets us know that those two groups were gathered that day and there was this crowd of people and then there was this smaller group of people and all of them were leaned in because what they wanted to know was, Jesus, how do we do this right? What does this really look like to be a follower of you? And Jesus is like, here's what this new world, here's what this new thing I'm doing looks like. And so this is, I think, a, an appropriate picture for how focused those guys were around Jesus that day. And what's fascinating is he goes through all of this grand scope of like, you've heard it said this, but I tell you, if you've done this, then you've done this. And it's just this, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. I mean, he's covering so many different topics. And then towards the end, he delivers just four sentences, three or four sentences that are powerful. And those are the sentences that ultimately answer the question that I want us to, to kind of look at today. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words, and these words being Matthew 5, 6, up to this point in 7, so the entirety of Sermon on the Mount, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the wind blew, and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Now, Jesus is using, for, for what would have been for that crowd, a very relevant illustration you and I don't pick up on it as quickly because we're 2,000 years separated and we're tens of thousands of miles disconnected from the geography of Israel. But there's portions of Israel that are essentially desert wilderness. And depending on the time of year that you drop in, it looks like a desert or it could look like a, pra a prairie because there are these intense out kind of seasonal bursts of rain and storms that come in and literally create rivers where it used to be just dry bed. And these rivers would be massive, like rushing, gushing waters that could sweep away anything. And these storms were intense, right? You notice Jesus, the rain comes down, the streams, right? So there's this torrential downfall, there's flooding that starts to happen, and this incredibly intense storm with kind of powerful winds come in and this massive thing starts to shake this house, but the house stands because it had its foundation on a rock. These were common occurrences. These were the headlines of the day where people would read about these storms or experience these floods. And so Jesus is using this common, common moment to make this point. He's like someone who hears these words and puts them into practice, this is what it's like. But then he continues. He says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The, wind came, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Like there's the alternative. The alternative is you, the person who doesn't listen and put them into practice 
And he uses another common experience that they've all been familiar with in the headlines. The person who built their house hastily, who kind of wanted to cut corners financially, they chose to build it on what they thought was solid ground, and the storms come, and it goes down. And so he's giving this very vivid imagery to conclude the message. And his point is to the, to the followers, to the listeners, to the ones who are leaning in hard to saying, what does it look like to, to, to follow you well, Jesus? He lands essentially with a story that captures this word, obey. That what it looks like to, to be someone who's following well is someone who's obeying. And kind of the core of the word obey is be. Because out of this transformation of who we are, we naturally want to do these things. There's this obedience call in this message that he's giving them at the end. And there's a lot of undercurrents in this that culturally, contextually was happening at the time that makes what he's saying even more profound. But the essence of it really is just this simple word. That obey is how we follow. Now, that's an interesting word in our house. It's a word that we use frequently because I have a two-year-old who's now three as of just a week ago. And this is a word that's frequently being said, sometimes in vain, in our house because he's crazy. And we are trying to help my daughter understand because she's 10 and she's so sophisticated and mature. And she doesn't remember when she was two and three. And she clearly doesn't have any problems with the word obey. And so she's trying to, like, comprehend this little tiny tyrant, right, this little dictator that lives in her house. And, and she's such a good, like, imaginative player. And so she'll play with them sometimes. And, um, and just, like, recently, she's like, he is so, like, infuriating with this word mine. Like, yeah, mine is a little frustrating. And I came across this meme, and I was like, Ella, this is it. If he likes it, it's his. If it's in his hand, it's his. If he can take it from you, it's his. If he had it a little while ago, it's his. If it's his, it must never look like it's yours in any way. And if he's doing or building something, all the pieces that go with that are his. And if it looks like it's his, it's his. If he saw it first, it's his. If you are playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes his. And the only time it's not his is when it's broke and he doesn't want it anymore. I was like, Ella, that is your brother. She's like, oh, my goodness, that is so my brother. I'm like, yes, because he's a toddler and his whole world is mine. In fact, this little crazy kid will get mad at me when I say things like, hey, son, don't run in the road. Stop. A car might hit you. Because he'll just bolt. In fact, like last year, I was like, Jenny, you know what we should do? We should go to the Grand Canyon. Wouldn't that be so much fun if our family took an RV trip and did like the, like, you know, the Southwest? And she was like, she looked at me like this, like face of horror. And I was like, did I say something wrong? She was like, are, are you out of your mind? We would lose a child. 
Like, no, we wouldn't. We would see him. It would be easy. We'd, he's, he's fine. Like, we would eventually find him. She's like, no, we would lose him as in he would die. Because crazy would just run off the Grand Canyon. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're probably right. Because he will. Like, he just, like, he, and not only will he do crazy things like that, he gets mad at you when you stop him from doing crazy things. Like he was bolting through the house and there was something slippery and I didn't want him to fall and hit his head. And I was like, stop, buddy, you're going to slip and fall. And he turned around and he looked at me and his little lip and he started crying. He was crying because I stopped him from shattering his skull open and his brain leaking out. And it's in his world, and I think this is, is, is interesting, right, that he sees obedience as us taking good from him. That's why he thinks obedience is. You're taking the really good bouncy surface called the road away from me. You're taking that really awesome slick running surface away from me. It's all about the good you take away from me when you ask me to obey. But in reality, when, I, when we are asking him to obey, it's really about the good we want for him. Because I'm just crazy enough to believe that like your skull and your brain are better put together in their proper place. I'm just crazy enough to think that, like, human beings shouldn't bounce on the road because they got hit by a car. That's the good I want for him. And while it's really tempting sometimes to, like, kind of rub our head and be like, holy moly, is there a return policy? If I'm being honest, he's not too far from me. In fact, I would argue that to get sociologically and philosophically uh, kind of tangential for a second, that our culture, it's the water we stream in, like we swim in and we breathe and we live in, that our culture right now, this is going to sound really crazy and harsh, but it, I, I encourage you to disagree with me and go find the research on it, um, is probably the most self-centered culture that's ever lived. Here's my argument. There is one of the most distinctive traits of Western society, but specifically American society, is what's called individualistic autonomy. Okay? And what that means, to get out of the nerd sector for a second, is most of human history, throughout human history, has prioritized the we, the we, the society, the we, the people, the we, the tribe, the we, the nation, the we, the family, over the me. But we live in a culture that right now, and this is really actually interesting, that for the first time collectively in human history is actually flipped it. And me trumps the we. In a way that at a grand level has, I think, made us a little more uncomfortable with the word obey than probably any other culture in human history. Which is kind of crazy, right? I mean, like, we all like to think we're extraordinary, but oftentimes we know we're not. But societally speaking, we are an extraordinary society. We are the most educated society has ever lived. We have more information available at our fingertips in human history. Okay, but case in point, right now, all of human knowledge could be brought up on a tiny device inside of your hand. There is not a question 
that you can think of, almost, that you can't get answered right now in the next 35 seconds. And yet, simultaneously, there are more people convinced the earth is flat today than there has been in the last few hundred years. We have satellites orbiting planet earth right now. We have people who've literally gotten in rockets and gone up and seen the thing and taken pictures of it. And there are a bigger population of Americans, of people around the world who believe the world is flat more than in the last few hundred years. Like, you've got to let that sink in. Why? Individualistic autonomy. The me trumps the we. That means even the knowledge and the wisdom of the we. Okay, does that make sense? This is but I think this is important because this is why collectively our culture is probably not too much unlike a toddler when it comes to the word obey. Which is why when you look at American Christianity, people like Christianity until it gets to a place where Christianity tells them to do something that they don't want to do. That I, I read a lot in religious journals and religious articles, and um, there are so many Jesuses that people have created who like this, and because they like this, and who doesn't like this because they don't like this. And I just want to say kind of bluntly, if Jesus agrees with everything that you think in your life, you probably don't have the right Jesus. Because he's way too big for your box and my box. And if there's nothing where you and Jesus have clashed over recently in your Christian journey, I don't know. And that's a bold statement, but he's way bigger than us. And he's not concerned with us being happy with him. And so when he calls his followers to obedience, just read the Sermon on the Mount. Like, they're, they're raising their hand, like, how, no, Jesus, are you sure? Because he's like, I tell you this, if, if you've even looked upon someone, then that's lust. That's adultery. And they're like, whoa, time out. Jesus, like, that's a little harsh. It's a little judgmental. But it's because like, they're wrestling with it, but they're sincerely wrestling. I think in our culture, this me trumping the we is such a big deal that if we're not careful, it will creep into our relationship with him. And me will even trump he. And I've seen that in my own journey where I want to make Jesus kind of step under and submit to what I view the world as or what my values are or what I think should be true. We've seen this happen in political pockets. Both sides conscript Jesus to make him a political partner in their campaigns. And, and like, Jesus doesn't pledge allegiance to the American flag. Like, he doesn't hear the national anthem and put his hand over his heart. Because the only kingdom that will forever stand is his kingdom. I mean, this is why I say Jesus is so much bigger than our nice little tidy boxes where... He never says or calls us to do anything that makes us feel uncomfortable because that's not true. And this is why this, this point around my son I think is so helpful 
He goes, if we fixate on the what, especially knowing the culture that we swim in and the way that we often try to conscript him and them to fit under what we want, what I want, I can miss this. But at the end of the day, obedience really is, right? Like when he says follow, it's because he knows that when there is an obedience, a call to obedience at the end of the day, it's good for you. Even if it doesn't feel that way, even if it doesn't like sound that way initially, it is. And, and the reason I see this is even if someone's not a religious person, I encourage you, go to people's funerals and listen what gets talked about when people talk about people. Like, first of all, I've never been to a funeral and, and someone gets up to the microphone and it's like, can I just go ahead and break the ice here? Woo, aren't we glad that happened? Come on, let's give a round of applause. Like, man, this was the most self-centered, selfish, curmudgeon I have ever known. Can I get a holla, holla, what, what? It's not true. When you go to funerals, people either lie or they will say things like, he was so generous, she was so kind, they are so thoughtful. They would give you the shirt off their back. They would say things about people that strangely line up with what Jesus invites us into. The, the very traits that we celebrate at the end of people's lives without even having a religious bent to us. If you go to people's funerals who don't have a religious bent. They still celebrate the very things that Jesus invites us into. And so why? Because ultimately Jesus has the operating manual for us. He knows what's good for us. And sometimes that means in the short term, it doesn't look, it always in the short terms feels good to open your mouth and let whatever you just felt come out. It always feels better in the moment to tell them what you really think about them. But again, never met a couple 60 years married and people are like, oh, tell us about the secret of your success. Secret of my success is not having a filter and just letting her know what I really think about her. No. Like, Jesus knows what's good for us. And so when we hear the word obey, the call to obedience is because it is good for you and for me. And that's what it looks like to follow. But going back to my, my son, ultimately my desire for him as he grows older is not for the obedience to stay in the arena of the what that I'm asking him to do. Eventually what will happen and what he's already starting to realize as he gets a little older is that even when he doesn't like the what, the underlying question, the underlying solace for him is he can trust the who, right? My wife may say to him, Henry, don't do this, and he may not like it, but she's the one who two weeks ago when he was sick would rock him and sing to him and would come in there in the middle of the night and comfort him. The who loves him. The who is for him. 
and takes care of him and tries to do things to make his life better. And what he's learning and what I think is the secret to like raising teenagers that I got from a mentor a long time ago is, man, put all the chips in you can when they're small so that they understand and, and recognize who is more important than the what. The relationship with the who trumps the what you're asking them to do. Like, put your chips in that so that when you disagree or when they want to do something that you don't want them to do and they want to do something you want them to do, whatever it goes out looking like, that where it ultimately falls is do they trust you and believe you've got the best in mind for them. And, and interestingly, Jesus does this in a way that's profound. So Matthew 7, this whole section, 24 through 27, if you study rabbinic literature, which is like teachings of like rabbis throughout history, this isn't that uncommon in rabbi teaching in Israel, especially thousands of years ago. The imagery of a house being built on a rock um, and a house not being built on a rock and a storm comes and one falls and the other one don't, that's actually a pretty common sermon illustration for rabbis back then. What was profound was what Jesus did here. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. Rabbis never said that. Rabbis would say, anyone who reads the Torah or hears the teachings of the Torah, which was God's kind of the Old Testament scriptures, and puts them into practice, they always pointed back to God. They always pointed back the, to the Torah, the teachings. Jesus comes along and does this radical thing that they would have caught that you and I don't pick up on as fast. He says, everyone who hears these teachings of mine, he connects the dot to the who before he lands the hard what. Because the who, this call for who is more important than the what. This is ultimately, at the end of the day, remembering who he is allows us to navigate the what he calls us and asks us to do as we follow him. Which is why last week I started with Paul. And so this right here is one of the newest pictures that came from the James Webb Space Telescope. This is called the Cartwheel Galaxy. And in the Old Testament teaching, there was this idea that the heavens declare the glory of God. And when, when David wrote those words, he looked up at the night sky and that's all he saw. When I say that we're the most educated, we're the most knowledgeable humans that have ever lived, it's really true. When we talk about the heavens, we don't see little white dots on a black sky. We see this. Like this wasn't even in David's night sky. because It's too far away and too small. Look how gorgeous that is. Like God created that so long ago that we're one of the first generation of humans to see this thing and marvel at it. Never been seen before our generation. We see it. And it's just been sitting up there like countless billions and trillions others of these kind of things that we still have not yet seen. And he calls that Candace. 
And he made her. He doesn't really call her Candace. I don't know what he called her. But he made her. He formed that. He called that into existence. And we just saw it, and we instinctively, this is why I think he probably named them, he instinctively, like we instinctively said, oh, that's the cartwheel account. Like we have to name this stuff. This is stunning. This was made by the same who, who spoke those words that we just read. And for us to understand this follow thing, what I started last week, I want to end with. Paul doesn't just have that profound moment. Paul will go on and live his life in a way that completely transforms the world. And towards the end of his life, Paul writes, towards the middle of his life, Paul writes these words to a church in Corinth. He says, reflecting on kind of the grace of God and the end of his, like, you know, what happens at the end and why is Christianity so important. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. He's like, this who, this amazing, great, powerful God that is, who formed and fashioned all of creation, who spoke the universe into existence, the one who died on a cross for the worst of me, that God was so good to me. I don't do all of this with my life because I want to be right with him, because I feel guilty. He's like, no, I work harder than all of them because of the grace of God that was with me. Because of what God has done for me, I want to do this for him. I want to obey. I want to love. I want to be generous. I want to be kind. I want to be honest. I want to say yes even when the no is so painful because I don't want his grace to not have an effect. I mean, the who completely reoriented the what. And most religious circles are, are, are fueled by people who feel guilty And out of their guilt, they try to do right things to cover up their guilt. And then Christianity comes along, and it's completely opposite and inverted. It's because our guilt was covered by grace that we want to do right things. And what's so hard for people to understand about Christianity and religion, we all intuitively get when it comes to love. When you love someone, whether it's a good friend whether it's your parents or whether it's a romantic relationship. Like, you want to do things for them because you love them, not because you want them to love you. And this is Paul. He's like, man, I just, his grace to me was not without effect. And where this gets really practical, can I just be real with you? Like, being a pastor during a pandemic has not been easy, it's been challenging. And like, you know, there's so much that you haven't seen through this journey. But I believe God invited me into this thing and it was my yes. And that yes sometimes means we say hard no's. So I can just, let me just tell you a crazy no I said. Okay, I wasn't planning on telling you this, but I'll tell you this because I want you to like at least have a little tea. My wife and I, out of nowhere, like a few weeks ago, somebody called and offered us a job, both a job. 
We'd be making like $250,000. I could have a pool, and I could have a house, and it'd be in a different part of the U.S., and it would legitimately, it would be like the equivalent of making like four hundred grand here because of the cost of living difference. And you know what I said? Yes. No. I said no. It's like, but you realize how much easier this would be how much more money? Because just in case you're curious, you're like, oh, was that like comparable to what you're making now? No, it is not. <laughs> just to be very clear with that. It wasn't like they were coming in matching my current salary. <laughs> it was not like that at all. It was like, oh, I bet they'll say yes if I give them this number. Because they want me to help do some things. Because I've been consulting with them and, and coaching some things with them. And I was like, no, I'm sorry. And it wasn't even a hard no. Because I believe that the God who formed and shaped and molded and made me in the universe, who saved me, rescued, redeemed me, has invited me here to be a part of this thing that's not even yet begun yet. And I think the best days, the biggest days are still in front of this church, and I can't wait to see them. And for some of us, that's how ridiculous it looks sometimes to say yes to God. Right? Yes to him. And for some of you, maybe you're facing choices and situations in your life, and I hope you understand as you've walked away that it's not about the what. Obedience is about the who. And that ultimately, we obey because God has been good to you and to me. And that his grace should not be without effect. And that's what it looks to follow. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love and hope. And I pray, Dad, for wisdom and discernment for us in our lives because I know for some of us, we're processing through what does it look like. Maybe we're dealing with a work decision or a relational decision, and we're in that moment trying to wrestle through what we want to do and what you want us to do. And God, I pray that even in my poorest attempts today to capture your goodness, to capture your greatness, that we would have been brought back for those who follow Jesus to that central point that we obey because it's good for us, but ultimately we obey because of how good you've been to us. And so may you help us, Spirit of God, well up in us a confidence that says, yes, I will a confidence that is anchored in how beautiful you are, Jesus, that gives us a conviction that says, so will I. God, so will I. I will obey. I will follow. I will trust. I will walk behind you, believing that what you lead me into is worth what I have to walk through that I believe that there are healing. I believe that there is peace. There is joy on the other side of my so will I, of my yes, I will. And thank you, Jesus, ultimately, for how good, for how gracious you've been to us. And it's in your name I pray, amen.